Hebrews 11 is probably the most familiar part of the book of Hebrews to members of the church because it is so full of reminders of stories that we can remember studying uh, from the Old Testament. And the subject is faith. Tonight we're looking at Abel. Abel, who offered a better sacrifice, and Enoch, who didn't die. So I want to start with a question. Do we know what we're talking about? We use words all the time, and, and they become a part of our vocabulary, but we don't think about the content of the words. So what is faith? Not supposed to be a rhetorical question. <laughs> what is faith? How do you understand the content of that word? All right, something that hasn't happened, something you can't control, but something that you are counting on. Well, it isn't, is it? Like the little boy who said, it's something you know isn't true, but you believe it anyway. When I started to college, there was a, a wave of enthusiasm across a lot of uh, faith groups in America uh, calling faith a blind leap. You have to take a blind leap of faith, they would say. You just commit to something. What does that suggest? Have you thought of faith as a blind leap? Not blind. It's a leap, but it's not blind. Okay. What we're, what we're uh, dealing with when we, we talk about a leap, we know that reason works in our lives every day with material things, and you get to a certain point, and you're not at God. If all you, all you look at is the material world, you're not at God. How do you get from the logical, physical, material world to God. So some people describe that as a leap. The problem with calling faith a blind leap is it suggests there's nothing to go on. We've got lots to go on when we're talking about biblical faith. In fact, we have so much to go on that the definition from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 that you're familiar with emphasizes a very confident approach. As Judy described, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That sounds like you can rely on faith properly placed just as surely as you can rely on some conclusion from physical evidence. Confidence in past actions leads to expectations for future outcomes. And that's getting closer to what the Bible means by faith. Uh, a, a synonym is trust. So who or what do you have faith in? Who or what do you trust? that can result in the kind of confidence 
that the book of Hebrews describes as being sure and being certain. Being certain of the things you cannot see. Be sure of the things you hope for. What kind of word is hope? In, in reference to a timeline, what kind of word is hope? Expectation, what, Larry? Future. It's future-oriented. Paul says in Romans 8, you don't hope for what you've already got. You hope for something that's in the future. If you can be sure of that future, if you can be certain of what you do not see, cannot see, then that kind of confidence is even more certain than physical evidence. In other words, we can be just as confident through the eyes of faith about God as anything we can have confidence in. But is faith in tension with reason, with fact, That was also part of the discussion way back in the late 60s, that faith and reason didn't go together. Sometimes they were contradictory. Sometimes reason led to this conclusion, but faith, you can make it anything you want. It's interesting that the, the 11th chapter of Hebrews uses a couple of hints, a couple of suggestions. We understand by faith that the universe was formed. We understand. We conclude something. We understand by faith that the universe was formed by God. A little bit later in the chapter, the uh, second example from Abraham, and I'm not going to steal somebody's future thunder, but talking about Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he says... God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned. What did he reason? He reasoned that God could raise Isaac from the dead. He had no experience. No teacher ever told him to expect resurrection. He had nothing to go on except what? God's promise. Abraham had such ironclad certainty about the promises of God that he knew whatever happened that God would fulfill that promise through Isaac. He would have many descendants. The best Abraham could do was figure about resurrection. Of course, you remember the story. It turned out that God stopped him from sacrificing Isaac. And I've always uh, admired the response that Abraham had given to Isaac when they were on the way up the mountain. You remember the conversation? Isaac said, Father, here's the wood and here's the fire, but where's the sacrifice? There are a hundred things Abraham could have said what he said was, the Lord will provide. He really didn't know what the answer was. The Lord will provide. That's what faith is. And the thing that 
uh, I think we need to focus on is that faith deals with things we cannot see. That's the future. That's the past. That's God. We cannot see things that faith deals with. But our confidence in those things can be every bit that real through reason, understanding, through our revelation that we've received from God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, I, I like to use this verse especially for sermons because uh, especially if the person has been older, if they've had an extended illness, uh, people have watched their body decline and just kind of melt away. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, we focus not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because what is seen is only temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Christian faith brings an expanded reality. Even the Greeks knew there was reality beyond the physical world. And so uh, Plato talks about the two layers of existence. The ideal world, the real world, really is the one we can't see. But Paul says what we can't see is what we focus on. By faith. Faith helps us to enter that realm. Now, let's look at uh, Abel just, just briefly. The reason he's taking this whole chapter to talk about faith is because of the end of chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 39, he says, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Two groups of people. If you don't have clear-eyed faith, you will shrink back. But shrinking back is the posture of danger. You will be destroyed if you're in that group. We, those of us who believe, <coughs> are saved because of that quality of trust. So that's the group I want to be in. That's the reason for looking at all these examples. Starting with Abel. All we have here in, in uh, Hebrews is by faith, Abel offered God a better, better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commanded, uh, commended as a righteous man. And when God spoke well of his offerings and by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. Where do you read about Cain and Abel? All the way back in Genesis chapter 4. It's an interesting story when you look at it. Who's the main character in that story besides God? It's, it's Cain. I mean, Abel doesn't say a word. He, uh, he offers the sacrifice and then he is dead. But God talks to Cain all along. Talked to him before he killed Abel. Talked to him after he killed Abel. So Abel serves as a silent example of faith. Yet the writer of Hebrews says, even though he's dead, he still speaks. So 
How was Abel's sacrifice better? Hebrews doesn't tell us. Have to go back to Genesis chapter 4 to get any details at all. And even there, things are pretty sparse. Abel offered some from his flock. It's described as the fat portions of a firstborn lamb. In other words, it's the best, it's, it's the best in the flock. Cain offered some of the fruit of the ground. So what does that tell you? God accepted Abel's, rejected Cain's. Only thing the writer of Hebrews says is Abel offered by faith. Implication would be Cain didn't. But that isn't expressed. When I was young, and you, this may be your experience too, the explanation of the difference between the two sacrifices was Abel offered an animal sacrifice shed the blood of the sacrifice, offered that. And Cain offered crops, which wasn't pleasing to God. But where do you come up with that? It's only implication. You're reading into it from somewhere. It seems to be in the quality of the offering. Abel offered the very best he had from his flock. Cain offered some, like it was an afterthought, a by-thought, just like he grabbed some on the way out. It's like sitting in church and they pass the communion, the uh, collection basket, and you see what kind of change you got in your pocket. No thought, no preparation. And when his, by the way, how did they know whose sacrifice was accepted and whose was rejected? You have a Sunday school picture in mind? Well, this is on Sunday school. The smoke from Abel's sacrifice went straight up and Cain's went down to the ground. We don't know. But it was clear to the two of them whose was accepted and who was not. And so Cain became angry and in his anger plotted and carried out killing his brother. Was there a command to bring an animal sacrifice? Later on in the law of Moses, there are commands for certain sacrifices to be animal sacrifices. But it's also true that Moses had regulations about the grain offering. They were to bring the first fruits of all their crops, their harvest. So God can be worshiped through any medium, there's no record of him giving them a commandment about sacrifice. So it's reading a lot in to say God had given them a commandment for animal sacrifices. I think it's the attitude with which they approached worship. Abel, by faith, offered. That's the difference. What does it mean, by faith he offered? He was serving God as he understood God, as he understood the, the way to uh, devote reverence to God, and he followed that completely. There's nothing about a command. There's nothing about animals over uh, vegetables. It's that Cain brought some and Abel brought the best he had. 
And Abel is the one who lost his life. Abel doesn't say anything in that whole story. But his blood speaks. Apparently it speaks quite loudly. God says to Cain, the blood of your brother Abel is crying out to me from the ground. What was the message? What was it crying out? Abel's blood. In the next chapter of Hebrews, there's another reference to Abel's blood. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, the writer says, We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's the word of Abel's blood? What was his blood crying out from the ground to God? His brother's guilt. His brother's guilt. Justice. Recognize that an innocent person has lost his life. Jesus, in Matthew 23, his uh, criticism of the Pharisees, says, you are guilty of all the righteous blood that has been shed from the righteous Abel to Zechariah, son of Berechiah. That's from Genesis to 2 Chronicles, which in the Bible Jesus used was the last book. He's surveying every righteous person who's ever been martyred. And Abel is in that list. He being dead still speaks. And the only message from Abel is justice. Payment for the crime. That's why Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Because Jesus' blood is a word of forgiveness. Anybody have anything else from Abel about faith that you have heard or wondered or thought? Again, the reason that the writer has this chapter of Old Testament characters is to answer the question, what is faith, but not with the definition like he does in verse 1, but by looking at the specific actions of faith, by people who were living by faith, teaches us what faith is. And it's important to be in the group that believes and are saved rather than the group that is shrinking. Standing on the promises. It isn't a blind leap, Linda. You're, I agree with you completely. We have God's promises. Who is God and what does God do with his promises? We know the power of God and we know he's always faithful. You can't read through the first five books of the Bible and not come away saying God really does keep his promises. Before Moses died, he told Israel, he has kept his promises, he has brought you here, he will be with you. And how firm a foundation, especially like the verse that says, I, I will be with you. When Moses was talking to God through the burning bush and he kept making excuses, God said, Moses, I'll be with you. When Gideon was called to be a judge and he said, I'm the least in my family and my family is the least in my tribe and my tribe is the least in Israel, God says, 
I will be with you. That's the confidence from faith. Enoch has hardly anything written about him. In Genesis chapter 5 here, Hebrews writer says, By faith, Enoch was taken from this life <clears throat> so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. When does peer pressure begin? As soon as you're aware you're not alone. As soon as you're aware you're not alone. There's somebody else out there. And when does it intensify? First grade. When does it stop? I don't think it ever stops. We are influenced by those around us. The way we dress, the way we eat, the way we talk, the way we conduct ourselves. That's why Proverbs says, don't follow a crowd to do evil. You select the wrong kind of friends, it leads to corruption. The Bible's very clear about it. How did Enoch separate him from what was becoming an increasingly evil world? Enoch is the father of Methuselah. Methuselah was still alive in the year of the flood. Where did Enoch get his different way of life. How did he live so closely with God that God exceptionally treated him and spared him from death? Look at Genesis chapter 5 because uh, the story of Enoch is not as familiar because it's tucked into a genealogy. The genealogy of Adam. And so the, the uh, writer of Genesis, Moses, says, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. 300 years and had other sons and daughters, and altogether Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more. Because God took him. How did he resist peer pressure? When Moses was getting ready to die and the people were getting ready to go into the land of Canaan, Moses said, when you go into the land of Canaan, don't adopt their lifestyle. Don't take their gods. Don't intermarry with them because you are different. You're called to be different. As soon as they enter the land, they stop being different. Peer pressure does that to us. Causes us to lose our identity if we aren't careful. Enoch walked with God. That's really what we know about his life. Now, if you read the book of 1st Enoch, how many chapters did you say, Alan, is in the book of 1st Enoch? Over a hundred. Over a hundred chapters. And whoever wrote that book, it's apparently part of the intertestamental literature, 
talks about what happened with Enoch when he went to heaven. He learned all these deep secrets, secrets of creation, secrets of the world. He received even powers and uh, somehow was able to, to exert his influence in the world after, after he died. But not Genesis. Genesis says he walked with God. That's the sum of his life. Faithfully. Journey, uh, Eric's sermon this past Sunday talked about the, the figure of a journey. A journey is one of the most common figures in world literature to describe the path of a person's life. Walking, going on a journey. If you walk with God, what does that suggest about proximity. Sounds like companionship, doesn't it? Walking along the road with God in your every decision, in your every thought, and going in the same direction. Enoch walked in God's direction. When Paul writes to first century Christians and he says live a life that is worthy of the gospel or live a life that is worthy of God or live a life that is worthy of Christ. A worthy life. Walking with God Enoch must have had a worthy life. Walking with God suggests you're in step, you're going the same direction, you're in fellowship, there's a close proximity. You're side by side on the road. I've put a quotation here on, on the page. This is the back side, by the way, uh, of a child's summary of the life of Enoch. Enoch and God used to take long walks together. And one day they walked further than usual. And God said, Enoch, you must be tired. Come to my house and rest. I love that picture of coming to a certain point and then being invited to join God. And that's essentially what happened with Enoch. Is that by walking with God, resisting peer pressure, by being the one who showed in his life the character and qualities of God, he received... Escaping death. Do you think he lived that kind of life in order to receive that reward? Was that his motivation? Nobody had ever had that experience before. There wasn't a doctrine of the resurrection in Enoch's day. Sometimes people talk about living the Christian life, living a life pleasing God, so we can go to heaven. But that's not the reason. The reason is we live a life of faith because that is pleasing to God. It is a better way of life. And at the end of that life, we get to live with God. But the motivation isn't 
to go live with God. We are supposed to <coughs> We're supposed to appreciate the physical world God has made and placed us in. I believe it's 1 Timothy 4. <coughs> it's either 1 Timothy 4 or, or 2 Timothy 4. I think it's 1 Timothy 4. Paul lists all these things that in later days people will deny. Deny people eating meat and deny marriage and deny all these. But he says, God has placed these things here. Appreciate what God has made. You, you read the first chapter of Genesis and he placed Adam and Eve in the world he had made and it was good. Six times he says it was good and the last time it was very good. We aren't to live our lives getting away from this place as quickly as we can. But live our lives according to the dictates of God and after this life, we are rewarded in exactly that way. Now consider again the definition. Faith is being sure of what we hope for. What is it that we hope for? We hope for the end of suffering, the end of pain, the end of disappointments, tears. We hope to escape death. Faith is being sure of those things and certain of what we cannot see. Do your five senses ever play tricks on you? Have you been driving down the street in Memphis on a really hot, sunny day in the summer and you look up ahead and what does the road look like? Yeah, it looks like it's full of water and the sun is reflecting off the water. But you get there and it's just as dry as can be, just as hot. Your vision sometimes will, will confuse you, will mix you up. Sometimes it's your brain. Today I had a seventh grader, I gave him a quiz, and it was just a regular standard quiz, 10 questions, multiple choice. One seventh grader thought he heard me say, it's open book. He was the only one who thought he heard that. And I heard some commotion about three-fourths of the way through the test, some of the other Guys were saying, this is not an open book. But I couldn't see who they were talking to. After class, this one of the smallest uh, boys in the class was on the verge of tears. He said, can I talk to you after class? I said, sure. So we went and found a quiet place. I said, what's on your mind? He said, I thought I heard you say it was open book, and I used my Bible, and, and, I, and he was just, just fighting tears. I said, I have a blank quiz. You can take it over. He had a study hall next period, so he had some time that he could do that. Make sure you do it closed book. 
Sometimes our ears trick us. Sometimes our brains trick us. This is what we can see. This is where we live. But how certain is it? We, by faith, are sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. If you had a choice, would you live without faith? Would you want to? How bleak would life become if the only expectation we had was when we breathe our last, that's it. I am so grateful for God's gift of faith because while we take in the information that leads to our faith and we hopefully have exemplars in front of us who live a life of faith, it's a gift. It isn't just that we believe and we commit but God's Spirit works on us as well. Abel and Enoch, two characters from the early parts of Genesis that really don't leave us very much to go on. Uh, but uh, I want to go back to chapter 10. There's a verse at the bottom of your page that I included because it is the result of Christian living, Christian faith. Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Why? For he who promised is faithful. It isn't about us. It's about God. God is always faithful. We'll continue looking at Old Testament characters of faith. All right, Gary Kinley next week talking about Noah.